Romans chapter 6, where we've been for a few weeks now, and I don't want to say much in way of summary or of recap, because I want to move forward tonight and cover some ground um, on one particular point. But I'll go ahead and read one more time. We read this three or four weeks ago. It's sort of a position paper I wrote that I said, as we teach this series, we won't be teaching through these points one by one, but we're going to state them up front that this is what we believe, and then we're going to go through the scriptures and hopefully through Romans 6 and 7 and all of the Bible, it proves it out. But I'll give you the eight points. Number one, all men are sinners. Number two, God saves us from the power of sin, the power that sin has to condemn us on judgment day. Number three, if a professing believer continues in sin with no change, conviction, or chastening, he gives evidence that he was never truly saved. Number four, it is possible for a Christian to sin. Number five, it is impossible for a Christian to reach sinless perfection while he possesses his mortal body. Just a few more. Number six, it is possible for a Christian to drift so far into sin that God calls him a carnal Christian and will punish him severely to correct him. And that's one point that we'll actually focus on quite a bit here tonight. Number seven, God does not want us to continue in sin. Rather, he desires for us to put away sin and continually be sanctified, which means set apart and consecrated to God. Number eight, a believer will no doubt sin sometimes, but should not willfully continue on in what he knows to be wrong. He should confess his sin when he falls and live for Christ. And then underneath that, two more statements, we must remember that it is Jesus' righteousness that saves us and keeps us saved. We do good works because we love God, not to earn salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that we are saved by grace through faith. But verse 10 says we are saved unto good works that we should walk in them. And that is much of what Paul is saying here in Romans 6 and 7, which we talked a lot about. There are many people who take these passages in 1 John and they teach a second blessing. You have to, after salvation, come to God, have this experience, and if you do that, you can reach a state of sinless perfection where your sin nature no longer applies, where you do not have the sinful appetites of the flesh. So we spent a lot of time talking about that, but there's two things we said we want to very clearly state. We don't believe the Bible is teaching that sinless perfection for believers, but we also believe the Bible is teaching that if we have truly come to Christ, shall we continue in sin? God forbid. If we are saved, then we will necessarily have some form of sanctification to go along with it because someone who professes salvation but never shows any signs of sanctification gives evidence that maybe they made a false profession of faith. I will also say I personally take the position it's sort of impossible for me to look and judge 100% sure someone else's soul whether they've come to know the Lord or not. First John says if they deny that Jesus is God, they are not of the family of God. They have given that clear evidence. But we look at another's life, sometimes it is hard to tell and to know 100% for sure, did a person know the Lord or not, 
But boy, it sure is possible to look at someone's life and say they are not showing evidence of salvation. And sometimes that evidence can be conviction. Sometimes that evidence can be chastening from God, but something in their life needs to be different if they are professing Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is saying he has crucified us to our flesh, that we should walk in newness of life, that we should not serve sin, that we should not yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness, but yield yourselves to God. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 14, where we left off last week, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Then he says, Romans 6:14, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Remember, that is a earth-shattering statement for Jews who are being told by Paul, you're not supposed to be under the law anymore. You're supposed to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. That is something so completely different from the traditions of their fathers, from what the Old Testament has to say, that to be told you're not under the law, but under grace is actually a wonderful, freeing, blessed message for them and for every single one of us because the law killed but the the letter of the law killeth but the spirit giveth life we talked about sunday morning a little bit in the message and in this study also that the law was given as a schoolmaster to bring us to christ it proved that we are sinners it proved that we could not earn our way to god but in galatians paul said now that we are saved i'm no longer under a schoolmaster the old testament law in the letter and commands of it have passed away and some people were adding to salvation in legalism in the book of Acts chapter 15 saying in order to be saved you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Others were simply maybe not pointing to it for salvation but were looking to a non-Jewish audience that were new converts in Jesus Christ and were teaching them you need to keep our traditions, you need to keep our feast days, you need to keep the Old Testament law and at one point someone said to them why are you trying to lay a burden upon them that even your fathers were not able to bear. The law was crushing. The law was actually a gift of grace to teach the nation of Israel and the entire world. You cannot earn your way to God. You cannot keep the law perfectly. You can't even keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. You need Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But now that we are in Christ, he says, you are not under the law, but under grace. Then in verse 15, he goes back to again, perhaps what is their natural objection to what he's taught through the first five chapters, which are salvation by faith. Romans 6, 1 and 2, he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He gets to verse 14. You're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Well, I'm not under the law, so now I'm under grace. You're telling me I have eternal security? I'm saved? So now I can sin all that I want to, and it doesn't really matter because God's gracious anyway. No, the Apostle Paul says, remember, God forbid. The strongest possible negative in the Greek is used. No, I am not teaching we should continue to live in sin. I'll repeat this later, but again, the person who says, I can sin all I want to and still be saved, so I guess I'll just go live in sin, gives evidence that they likely 
never were saved because God gives us a new direction, new desires, and makes us a new creature. However, we'll look in the Word of God tonight. There is such a thing as a Christian being backslidden, a Christian living according to the flesh and dealing with the consequences of that because now that we are God's child, He will surely deal with us when we rebel against Him. We'll talk for a few minutes about consequences of a rebellious, sinful Christian. Consequences that a rebellious, sinful Christian will face. First of all, conviction. The Word of God says in 2 Peter 2, 6-8, through 8, a very interesting little set of verses. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample to those that after should live ungodly. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They were a wicked city. It was a miraculous event where God physically judged and destroyed a city with fire from heaven. Verse 7 says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Remember the story of Abraham and Lot, and how Lot lifted up his eyes towards the plains of Sodom. And he said, that's where I want to go. I'll take that direction. And Abraham took the opposite because their herdsmen were fighting. And Abraham, as the older, wiser one, said, we need to be able to be family. And they're fighting too much. This is going to cause problems. So in order to stay together, we need to break apart. We need a little bit of space. And he said, you pick which direction to go, and I'll go the opposite. And Lot picked the well-watered plains of Sodom. Perhaps he didn't know anything about it, but perhaps he did have his head turned by the bright lights, as it were, of that city, and he turned his eyes towards the plain, and eventually he ended up in the gate, and eventually he ended up living in this wicked city. We know the story from Genesis. We're not going to preach through it tonight, but the two angels that came when two strangers were in the city, the house was surrounded by the men of the house, young and old, and said, bring them out to us. It was a wicked city. It was a horrible place. But the Bible says two things about Lot. In verse number 7, it says that he was just. And in verse number 8, it says that he was a righteous man. We know that Abraham had faith, and by faith he pleased God. By faith he was justified, and he had an influence upon upon Lot, his nephew. And the Bible says that he was just. The Bible says that he was a righteous man. He was a good man. But as he lived every day in a city that was wicked, the Bible says he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. The word vexed has to do with grief, with sorrow, as if he was being pierced through with arrows in his soul because it bothered him to live around so many wicked people. Now he could have left. Or he could have been an influence there. But I believe the word of God bears out the record he didn't do either. Because they, Abraham, remember, he prayed with God and he said, well, are you going to destroy this city? What if there's 100 righteous? Okay, what if there's 90? What if there's 80, 70? And he worked them all the way down to 10 people and then stopped there. Perhaps in his mind, Abraham said, surely just within Lot and his family, there's going to be 10 people there. And I forget, but from the text, you can count Lot 
and his daughter-in-laws and his wife and his son-in-laws, there's enough to get to where you're pretty close to 10, right within his sort of immediate family. But the Bible says when Lot went to his son-in-laws and said, up, let's get out of this place. God will destroy it with fire. Does anyone remember what the phrase said about his son-in-laws? He seemed to them as one that mocked. He didn't have a good testimony. He didn't have a good word. He, didn't, he wasn't able to come to them and be serious about a message from God and have them even take them seriously. They thought he was mocking. I don't believe he had a good testimony. I don't believe he was doing much good in that city. But the Bible says he was severely convicted and he was vexed with their filthy conversation. And in what he saw and in what he heard, his righteous soul was vexed from day to day. Now, yes, sin should probably grieve all of us, but I think he was grieved not just because he was righteous, but because he was being convicted by God that you should not live in this place. Observe what is going on. Remember, Lot was not very perfect. Remember his solution to get them to leave the angels alone? My daughter, take her. Remember what happened with his daughters when they left? It was awful. His life was sifted. As Jesus said to Peter, that's what the devil wants to do to you. By the time it was over, he was sifted. He was destroyed as wheat would be cut apart and the chaff flying away. And I believe that if you rebel against God, it is possible to do that. It's possible for someone to know this is the will of God for my life. Perhaps he's calling me to ministry or even just to live a godly life, but I, I want to live the worldly lifestyle, and I want to chase the alcohol and the sensual pleasures of the flesh, and I'm going to live my life in sin, that type of a life will surely be brought under conviction by God. You can run from God. You can say, I want God to leave me alone. But you wake up one morning and see a sunrise, and somewhere inside your soul, God will say, I created that, and you know that, and you're running from me. Lot was vexed. Yes, we surely will be convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. It's one of the things he came to do is to convict the world of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, we are told in the New Testament. If we grieve the Spirit of God, no doubt he will convict us and he will let us know that the sin that we are in is grievous unto him. Yes, there's conviction. And then secondly, there's chastening. We could... Think simply of Jonah and how he ran from God. And God said, go, preach to Nineveh, the preaching that I bid thee. And he went the opposite way. He took the ship to Tarshish and he ran away from God. But God did not just leave him and let him go his own way and say, oh, well, I'm just not going to worry about Jonah. When we are God's children and run from him, what's he going to do? He's going to punish us. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, this is a famous passage. We've referred to it often. I'm sure we'll refer to it often in the future because it deals so clearly with the fact of chastening and how God chastens his children. Not that we lose our salvation. Sin does not break sonship, but it does break fellowship. And God will chasten us and correct us as he did Jonah. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 4. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. I'm going to get a drink here in a minute. 
you take her out. I'm sorry, if you could just take her for a walk and see if she does better. I love you, Sarissa. <laughs> it's my daughter. I kicked out no one else's. That's all. She's just going to quiet her down in the back. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. In verse number 6, the word chasteneth has to do with discipline, as a parent would discipline their child for disobeying. The word scourgeth has to do with flogging, as someone who had done something wrong would be taken, put in the public square, and flogged with a whip to be taught a lesson. I'll read it again. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Chastening is going to be a part of the Christian life in some way or some form at some point because it says every son whom the Lord receives, he flogs when they need it. He says, stop doing that. I'm going to let you go through this to learn your lesson. Verse 7, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. We use that word today in a derogatory way. People do as it is name calling. But the simple definition of it is illegitimate child, someone who does not have a father, who does not belong to a family. And here the Bible is saying if you can run into sin and you can do wrong and God never chastens you at all, if ye be without chastisement, again, whereof all are partakers. All of God's children are going to get chastised at some point. That's convicting. He says, if you can go into sin and never be chastised, then you don't have a father. That's what he's saying. You're not God's son or daughter. Verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? The word spirits there has to do sometimes with human souls, and I believe that's what it's talking about here. But it begins to say now in verse number 9, are we going to be mad at God because he corrects us? Remember, even our own dads corrected us. So if God is doing it, remember God's holy, God's sinless. God's going to have a good purpose behind it. Don't get angry when he chastens you. Be grateful for it. Verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Who profits when we are punished and chastened as a child of God for doing the wrong thing? Does God profit out of that? Does God need to do it? What does it say in verse number 10? He for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. King David said in the Psalms, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. It was good for me. It was affliction. It was punishment. God allowed it. Maybe it was chastening. But it was good for me. I learned more about the word of God. Verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. 
I could testify from my childhood, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. When you get chastened and disciplined by your parents, when you get spanked and whopped because you've been being foolish, it doesn't seem to be joyous. But in the same way that our parents did it, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been through it. It teaches you character. It teaches you about authority and about punishment. And it's a picture of what God does to us. And I'm glad that I had parents who loved me enough for my benefit to discipline me. And in the same way, if we are chastened of God, let us be grateful. Remember, I preach again someday, but the the message about the hedge of thorns that I preached years ago and how God has hedged us about that if we try to go into sin, we will be pierced with thorns. And rather than cursing the fact that he chastens us and allows us to be pricked and bleed, let us be grateful and say, God, I am in my flesh. I'm a sinner and I know it. Thank you that you put something in my way to keep me from where my flesh would naturally go. Let us be grateful if we are chastened by God. So if all of us are going to be chastened by God, surely, yes, when we are rebellious in our hearts toward God, as Jonah was, we will be chastened by God. Well, God knows, God loves me. I can do whatever I want. God loves me. Is that true? It is true that God loves us. He loves all the lost. He loves his children. His love is never in question. Rather, the question is, do you love God? Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And yes, the Christian may get to the place where he just quits on doing anything God has called him to do. God does not stop loving them, but he's not just going to turn a blind eye and let us go the way our flesh would like to go and rebel. He's going to chasten us. He's going to convict us, and he's going to call us back. And he does it for our own benefit more than his. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 25. I'll give you a moment to turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25. We'll read several of these verses here through verse 32. We quote these verses when we take the Lord's Supper, which I need to put on the schedule at some point too. There's a lot of things i got to remember. We'll, we need to make sure that I don't forget to ever take the Lord's Supper around here because it's one of the ordinances of the church. Verse 25. After the same manner, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Okay, so he points back to the story of the Last Supper and how Jesus instituted it and how in the book of 1 Corinthians, he was teaching them the proper way to do it and to keep the ordinances. So the ordinances of the church are baptism for new believers and the Lord's Supper among those who are already saved. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he tells them that they were sinning because they were taking the Lord's Supper and they were turning it into a drunken feast. They were literally indulging and eating and just making it a party. And they said there was poor people who never ever got to partake of what was going on because other people were indulging. And he said it's simply supposed to be a time to remember Jesus Christ and what he did. The bread representing his body that was broken for us. The blood, the juice representing his blood. So he says this in verse number 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily 
shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Sometimes people who, people who are unsaved should not partake of it, but also Christians who are rebellious should not partake of it. Sometimes in the New Testament, the word damnation simply carries the meaning of judgment, harsh, harsh severe judgment from God. Verse number 30, look what he says next. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Within the church, people were sinning. They were being fleshly. They were taking the Lord's Supper, and instead of examining themselves and making, trying to make sure they were close to God and taking the time to say, we remember the body and blood of the Lord, they were doing it carnally. They were doing it in their flesh. And he said that in this church, because they were doing that, many were weak and many were sick. And many sleep, which refers to death. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are what? We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Because of the way they treated the Lord's Supper, the Lord, in his chastening, was allowing their physical bodies to get weak and sick. And some people, he said, I'm going to go ahead and let you die because they continued so far into sin. There's a verse in 1 John 5.16, which is worded a little confusing. and I'm not going to do the whole study on it tonight, but it says this, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Very simply to say, most all Bible commentators teach, and we would certainly hope that we don't believe the Bible is teaching, well, there's some sin that's so bad you don't get judged for it, you don't get spiritual death, but some sins are so bad it separates you from God. No, some, most all Bible commentators believe there is a sin unto death, there is a sin where you can go so far past that God in his judgment and chastening says, I'm going to allow you to actually die before your time because you are running from God. There's a sin unto death. We saw it in 1 Corinthians. Many died from the chastening hand of the Lord because of the way they treated the Lord's Supper. First, we just read 1 John 5, 16. And again, that was the third point that we read in this position paper. If a professing Christian continues in... No, it was... I put the wrong number down in my nose. I don't know. Um, the one where it said that God would punish us. Number six, God will punish us severely to correct us if we continue in sin, even after we know the Lord. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Another good example of this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lied. They promised they would give all the proceeds from the sale of their property to God, and it wasn't necessarily that they were refusing to give 100%, but the text says because they lied, and what happened to them? They were struck dead because it was God chastening them, punishing them. It was an example of a sin unto death because they lied about what they did. They took some of the proceeds 
from their property and held it back, but said, we're taking all of it and giving it to God, and God allowed them to die. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and thus sothness our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Who does he say the epistle is written to? It's to the church that is at Corinth and to them that are sanctified. Now, I'm not going to say it's impossible that there were some among the church body that were lost. No doubt there was, as with a crowd of any size, there will be some false believers. But he says he's primarily writing this not to anyone who's lost, but he's writing it to those that are saved. And if you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, the church there was a mess. He had a lot to correct and put in order. But he did not write and say, you're not saved and you need to get saved because I see there's some sin in your life. And if you were really saved, there wouldn't be any sin. He wrote to say, you need to repent of the sin that's in your life as a Christian and on the mess that's going on in your church and clean it up. We'll give a few examples. This might be about as far as we get tonight, but we'll look at several places here. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 11. One of the great issues they were dealing with was division. For it had been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. There was strife in the church. Now this I say, verse 12, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. You'll see it happening today sometimes too. Well, one had a favorite preacher that was Paul, and the other one liked the ministry of Apollos, and the other one of Cephas. And so they were divided and got to the place where they were identifying, not first of all as a Christian, but look at what they said. I am of Paul. When someone introduces themselves to you and the first thing they say is they mention being a follower of another preacher who has a national ministry, oftentimes that's a sign that there's something a little bit off or that there's a little bit gone sideways and multiple people have walked through this door and within the first two sentences they reference a pastor from Arizona because they're identifying as a follower of his and that's what they were looking for but what does he say in verse 13 is Christ divided was Paul crucified for you were you baptized in the name of Paul I wasn't crucified on a cross for you and neither was any other preacher it was Jesus and we're followers of Christ not that it's wrong to be under spiritual leadership. Paul said at one place, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. But you don't identify as a follower of the Apostle Paul or of any preacher anywhere. And he goes on to say in the next couple of verses, he's glad that he didn't actually baptize while he was there because he didn't want to get accused of baptizing in his own name. That's not what Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Verse 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, so now let's move on. What was another problem that they had in the church? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 1. He actually addresses the same issue again, but look at how he puts it here. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. 
He didn't classify them as spiritual. He classified them as carnal, fleshly in their thinking, not mature. But he does not go on to say, you're not saved, you're not in Christ. He says, even as unto babes in Christ. When we're saved, what did Jesus call it in John chapter 3? Born again. But when we're born again, we're not supposed to stay a little baby our whole Christian walk. We're supposed to begin the walk of sanctification and of maturing in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet are ye now able. That's where the phrase comes from, the meat of the word of God. We want to dig into what it says. Verse 3, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? I'll pause there for one second. Um, The book of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 11. Hebrews 5.11, he mimics the same thing that he just said. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when the time that ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. So he says the same thing. He says you should have matured so much that you could be teaching other people what the Bible says, but instead you're what? You're not lost. You're a babe in Christ. And I have to teach you the first principles again because you're listening, but you're not hearing. You're not walking in the word. What does the book of James say? Be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Else you hear. It's like a man who looks in a mirror, goes away, forgets what was he, he saw. We're supposed to hear and to do so that we do not forget what we are taught. And he said, you should have matured enough that you could have t- taught this to other people. Now I have to teach it to you all over again, and you're unskillful in the word, you need milk, not the strong meat. And he uses again the phrase, a babe, as he says here in 1 Corinthians 3, a babe in Christ. Part of what he's saying in 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews 5 is quit being a baby, grow up, mature in Jesus Christ. So there are some who are walking, not that they are lost, But God looks at their life and says, you're a babe in Christ. You're being carnal. It's time for you to grow up and go forward and walk in your Christian life. So again, I go back to saying in my heart, I look at someone and how am I supposed to judge 100% sure they're not saved because they did this. I know people who were under this ministry that I was able to work with as teenagers long time ago. And they're rough and they have some rough things go on in their life. But sometimes something rough goes on in their life and they get rattled and they show up to church the next Sunday morning. And I can't look at them and and compare their walk to someone else's. They came from a family that didn't know God in rough situation. And the evidence doesn't look the same, but I do see evidence that they know Jesus Christ and that he is calling to them and that he is chastening them and convicting them. So sometimes there's someone who's saved, 
but they're babes in Christ and they need to grow up. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4, he just goes back to the same thing again. One saying, I am of Paul, and the other, I am of Apollos. Verse 4, are ye not carnal? Praise the Lord. He planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Verse 7, so then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. It's not about the preachers. It's not about the servants of God. It's about the God that they serve, and he's the one. Look, we're, we're looking to the future of our church. What does the word of God say? We can plant, we can water, but it is God that gives the increase. If we try in our flesh to achieve it, we will fail. Our best efforts will fall short. If God does not decide, I will increase. I will bless. Let's look to him to do it. Um, down to verse number 21. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21, he wraps up, Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you're Christ and Christ is God's. Let me see 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is the last text here in the book of 1 Corinthians, just again showing how they were being carnal, yet he addressed them as Christians that needed to be corrected and matured, not necessarily as lost people, but they were no doubt coming under chastening from God, and Paul was saying, you need to get it turned around. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, dare any of you having, verse 1, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. What, are, what is Paul talking about here? There were Christians within the church who had a matter against a brother, and what did they do? They sued them. Go to law before the unjust. They were, as we would bring a lawsuit, they would go to the local court, and he says the unjust, again, what is he separating? The saints, those who are saved, from a magistrate who is unsaved, and he says you're giving a bad testimony to the law of Christ. And what you ought to do is within the church seek what we would call mediation, and work it out so that we don't drag the name of Christ through the mud by Christians fighting with one another and give God a bad testimony. He says in verse number two, the saints shall judge the world. We know that Jesus taught that to his disciples. They would sit on the 12 thrones when Christ came in his kingdom. We know the Bible teaches that those upon whom the mark of the beast does not have power shall live and reign with him for a thousand years. He says we're going to reign one day with Christ in the millennial reign so why are you going before the world to have your matters judged instead of working it out in-house, in the church? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Again, I don't know, but it seems in the context of that end time and the millennial reign. Verse number five, I speak this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. Again, what were they? I know I'm repeating myself. They were brethren. They were Christians in Christ. But he said, you shouldn't be going to the world to get judged. Verse 6, but brother goeth to law with brother and that before 
the unbelievers. He's not talking about blood brothers. He's talking about the family of God brothers because he calls them brothers and unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? He said it would be better for you to lose whatever it was you were trying to gain than to gain it in the courts by suing another Christian and give Christ a bad name, even if you were right. He says, suffer yourself to be defrauded. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Verse 8, nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor drunkards, nor covetous, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, I'm sorry, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. You say, uh oh, I've done one of those sins in my life. I know someone that did. That means I can't be saved. Those people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, past tense, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The end of verse 9 lists on all of these sins, abusers of themselves with mankind. The word there means male homosexuals. But there were people in the church who got saved and they got delivered out of that sin, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And God did not see them as that anymore or as any other of those sins, but he saw them as justified by Jesus. Our time is up tonight. Um, the last point that I may go to a little bit next week, but I may want to skip past it. So number, it was conviction, chastening, and then thirdly was humiliation at the judgment seat of Christ. Matthew 25 and verse 23, there was the servant whom he told, well done. But then there was the one who took his talent and hid it in the earth. And Christ was angry at him. First Corinthians, let me read you these four verses. And then we'll be dismissed. I'll take an extra two minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 11. 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll read 11 through 15. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. He's saying Christ is the foundation, and when we have Christ as our foundation, after we are saved, we then have the choice, what are we going to build upon it? The gold, the silver, the precious stones, the things that are eternal, the things that will last, the good works. Remember, he told the disciples, give a cup of cold water to a little child in the name of Jesus, and you will not lose your reward. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven not on earth because what you treasure on earth the treasure you have on earth the moths can eat it the rust can corrupt the thief can steal it but the treasure you lay up for yourself in heaven you won't lose it what is that it's the gold it's the silver it's the precious stones but living to our flesh making money that's wood hay and stubble verse 13 every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Verse 15 says, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, which means through the fire, in spite of the fire. It says here in the word of God, there are some people who will stand before Jesus Christ. They will be saved, 
but their works will be burned up as God evaluates it by the fire of his truth. And what does it say? He shall suffer loss. Oh, you can say, I'm saved. I'm going to live however I want to. It doesn't matter. But Oh, it's going to cost you greatly in this life and in the next one. And again, I think personally the person who out loud states they have no desire to serve Christ because he's given them eternal security gives evidence they probably never knew God in the first place. But the person who does sin against God and walk according to their flesh, the Bible says they shall suffer loss. There will be some people who will be saved, but their works will be destroyed because they were wood, hay, and stubble. May we endeavor not to be that carnal Christian that gets punished by the Lord, but let us endeavor to be mature Christians and follow him each and every day. Let's be dismissed with prayer. Lord, bless us as we go to our homes tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. May we strive, Lord, to walk not according to our flesh, but according to the Spirit. And may you be pleased with our life. May we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Be with the prayer requests that were given for Carol's stepmom. We rejoice for the good report uh, for Gail, but pray that you would continue to give good news and that the cancer would be healed and that you'd give her more years that she wouldn't be in pain. And we rejoice that she gives testimony to know you as Savior. And for the lender that worked with Darren, the lady named Karen, her dad that's in hospice, we pray that you would please be with him and bring comfort to the family and healing to the sick. And I pray that he would know the Lord if he does not. Bless us as we go our separate ways. Bless our service that we have here on Sunday. May we see good things done and may it be done not for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.